Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land, episode number 269. As you can see, if you're watching the video, my goddamn camera still broke. Got a new webcam. Piece of shit. Didn't work well. Looked terrible. Couldn't zoom. Couldn't pan. Couldn't anything. So I'm still using my crappy laptop one. Doesn't look terrible, but uh, it's just annoying to me to deal with. And when things annoy me, I tell you people. That's the gift I give you. That's the love that I spread here at Electric Liberty Land. So, starting off the show, Ukraine, huh? Nailed it. Got that got that one exactly right. <laughs> uh, you know what? Shit happens, guys. What can I say? Some Sometimes you don't get things right. Your assessment is off. And I got to tell you, though, I still... I'm going over in my head, right? And you say, Brian, how can you come to a conclusion that's so catastrophically wrong? You know, Putin marched in there. There's an uh, there's an honest to God invasion. He is attacking. There's bombs. There's troops on the ground from multiple fronts. I did not see this coming. I will admit when I am wrong, and I was wrong on this. A big swing and a miss. Got a little egg on my face to go along with all the uh, the rest stop donations from the men in the bushes. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's things dripping off the eyebrows here. But like I said, I I do not, while well, my assessment was wrong, I, I don't understand what Putin is thinking. I think this has vastly more potential to blow up in his face than it does to have any sort of real strategic sense to it. Initially, right, and I, I tweeted this out, I was watching Fox News and Brett Bears up there with his giant goofball fat head, and he had literally pointing to maps. And this is supposed to be reassuring how Russia had been contained, right? How Russia is surrounded by NATO and its allies and U.S. troops, right? And it's got the NATO flag and the U.S. flag in every country surrounding Russia. And I tweeted, I said, Brett Baer unintentionally highlighting exactly why Putin did what he did. But I didn't see this this kind of invasion coming, right? I don't think it strategically makes sense. What made sense to me was Putin taking the Donbass region, right? Inglorious Donbass. It's one of the greatest episode titles in the history of podcasts. What made sense was him taking that area since it was already removed from Ukraine. It was already existing as an autonomous state or multiple states with their own governments, with their own societies that were Russian ethnically, that believed in the Russian model that didn't want to be part of the Ukraine, right? It made sense to me to say, okay, I'm going to take these on. My peacekeepers are there. But it made the statement that, look, I'm not going to go and and sit idly by as you join NATO, as you accept armament to be positioned in the country on my borders. That's a no. Yet uh, means yet, right? Now, having rolled in there, bombing runs in Kiev, you know, he just, the Holocaust Museum where, uh, you know, some 38,000 Jews were killed during the Nazi occupation. That just got blown up today. He is operating, my dog's sneezing behind me, that's nice. The way he's operating doesn't make any strategic sense to me because if anything, here's what's happened. 
Russia's army is not geared up necessarily for a full-scale prolonged war, right? Russia is not the economic superpower it once was under the Soviet Union. They've got troops, sure, they've got weapons, sure, but they don't have them in mass amounts. They don't have the money to sustain a ongoing campaign. It's going to be $15 million or a billion dollars a day it's costing Russia to have these troops there to fight them. Not only that, but Russia probably expected Ukraine to roll over and simply say, okay, we give up, we surrender. That has not happened. If anything, the Ukrainian people have solidified and had, have adopted a national identity, identity of fuck Russia at this point. I was listening to, um, I think it was uh, Natalia on, on Matt Kibbe's podcast, you know, Kibbe on Liberty. And it was she was giving her insight into how this has galvanized Ukraine against Russia to unite as a people where they didn't really necessarily have this identity before. They didn't really necessarily have something to tie them all together. Now they do. Uh, Zelensky has been really impressive as a comedian turned now wartime leader of a nation that is being invaded. He has been impressive. He has refused to back down. They are providing arms and you know weapons to the civilian population, which we talk about libertarian inspiration here, guys. Look no further than once again, a perfect example of a population, which by the way, Ukraine does not have an armed population. They have some hunters, but not armed until the government armed them, right? With these automatic weapons to fight back. And the, the way in which the military is organized is kind of like each region has a force, a fighting force, but they don't have military might in, in regards to the way a Russia does, the way United States does, right? So the government has armed these people who have some military background or training, right? These civilian corps with armaments, with automatic weapons, with anti-tank weapons. And they are fighting back effectively to the point where now Russia's troops are being demoralized. Who they went, they walked in. I'm sure they were told, much as Americans are told, you are going to be viewed as liberators. You're going to march into this country. They are going to accept you with open arms and say, oh my God, thank you for making us Russians again. Or in our way, Thank you for making us democratic society. Thank you for liberating us from whoever we elected or whoever is, you know, the current dictator at the time, be they good or bad from our perspective or from the perspective of the population. Always the pitch to the military is you will be liberators. That has not happened. The Russians have not been liberating anybody. They've been forcibly repulsed, told to go and fuck off. And now we see a demoralized Russian military. We see a overextended military that didn't expect this sort of prolonged campaign. You see now NATO, right, viewing, moving their troops in, helping to supply weapons. Now Russia is saying don't supply weapons. Hungary, like I was just talking to the CEO of Retalk, you know, Pete Saborsky, who was on the show. He's in Hungary. Hungary neighbors Ukraine. And I was talking to him. I said, you know, I, I, yeah, I wish I had him on the show a week later instead of Mark Milkey. No, no, I'm, I'm Mark Milky's coming later in the show, by the way, guys. He, he's a very interesting interview about victim cult. So uh, stay tuned for that. But I'm talking to Pete, who's in Hungary. And I'm like, what's your take, man, on this, on the Second Amendment? Like, Hungary doesn't have a, a really dominant Second Amendment culture either. Again, it's kind of like hunting rifles. And he said, you know, what's interesting is I'm looking at the Ukraine, right? From as a Hungarian, you know, we were a communist. We got taken over by the Russians. We fought the Russians and lost. Now, he's saying that he'd actually like to see more U.S. intervention because in Hungary's case, the Soviets were expanding. They thought they were going to get help from the West, and they didn't, right? They, they got taken over. So he's saying, you know, I'd actually like to see Ukraine get help from, from U.S. support or from NATO to, to reject these, these Russians. I, don't, I still don't think that's necessary. I still don't think that I want us involved there. Actually, I know I don't. 
It's not our fight. And I don't believe in that. And I don't believe Americans should be going over and potentially dying or causing a, a possible nuclear holocaust, you know? And it was fun, kind of funny. And I tweeted out a pretty dark tweet, but uh, there's an article circulating that uh, the benefit of a nuclear war would be that it would cause a nuclear winter and solve climate change. And to which, of course, I replied, now that is a great reset. <laughs> but literally, we're playing with nuclear brinksmanship here. Russia is nuclear armed. There's a reason why, look, at certain times you have to say, we don't approve what you're doing, right? Well, we're going to support Ukraine in their fight. Maybe you give them some arms here and there, but let me talk about the downside of that in a minute. But we're not going to get involved. We're not going to force this into a nuclear situation. There are times when a nuclear-armed country might take something like this and you just have to go, yeah, yeah, okay. That's the way it's going to be because it's not worth it to everybody else in the world to have a nuclear holocaust because of it. And that's what we're winking at, right? That's what we're winking at across the bar. That's what we're eh, giving a little lip, lip tickle to across the bar as we get drunk on power and positioning and propaganda and think that we have to go out and save the world. Well, there's not going to be a world left to save, right? I don't want to fuck that chick across the bar that's eyeballing me with my nuclear dick, to put it eloquently. But we talk about arming Ukraine. And to get back to Pete Savorsky here in Ukraine, you know, Hungary denied weapons being supplied through Hungary to the Ukraine. And there's reasons for that. The Ukrainian uh, prime minister basically said, look, I don't want Russia attacking my country because weapons are being transferred tr uh, through it. I don't want Russian bombers killing civilians here, killing innocents in my country because weapons are being provided to the Ukraine. Now, in another standpoint, this is what Pete was saying over at uh, the Retalk CEO. He was saying, my worry, too, is that just like with all of these other instances of the United States or of NATO or of anybody supplying arms to a rebel population, right? Well, what happens? One of two things. Not, now, with the Ukraine, I'm not saying that the Ukrainians are going to turn against the United States and use those weapons on us necessarily. But what if they don't win? What if we provide all of these weapons to the Ukraine, all of these potent, fresh new arms, tanks, bombs, missiles, you know, uh, automatic rifles, whatever it might be. And then tomorrow, after we send these crates and crates and, and all these tactical arms, tomorrow Ukraine goes, you know what, we, we give up. Well, now we've just resupplied the Russian army. And again, to Pete's point, now what? Is Russia going to is are they going to stop there, or are they going to look to expand? Are they going to look to go into Hungary? Are they going to look to go into any of the neighboring regions there? Now that they've been resupplied by us, and once again we have an example of the United States and NATO, wherever it might be, that's sending arms, the Germans sending arms and helmets and whistles and guns and everything else. We have another example of those weapons being turned on us because we're supporting something that we are not specifically involved in, right? But well, let's go and cast our lot with these people and just see how it works out. Historically, it ain't worked out too well for us. So we shouldn't make that mistake again. Now, strategically, talking about Putin's decision, again, why I'm just still flabbergasted that this is going on, that it's been how it's been, is that when you look at the way this has played out, right? You galvanize the Ukraine, which now even more, now the Ukraine wants even more to be in, in the EU. I should just call them Ukraine, not the Ukraine. If they were the Ukraine, they'd be part of Russia's Soviet Union. Ukraine has no appeal to be a part of the EU. The EU may hot ticket that thing right through there and get them approved. 
Even more so now, Ukraine would be willing to arm against Russia to put weapons on the border. So this has backfired spectacularly in Putin's face, unless he manages to take over Ukraine and win and then everything else, it it happens, which is possible. I don't think it's going to happen at this point. I think that he's going to pull out and have to turn tail. But I could be wrong. Obviously, I swung and missed on my assessment before of what was going to happen here. But now, strategically, Putin has all of the other regions even more motivated to box him in because of this gambit. You have Ukraine galvanized against him. And should he be repulsed, even more incentivized to bring in all the missiles from NATO to join the European Union, to make themselves a true opponent and a threat to Russia. And that's the ongoing danger of this is Putin, to me, has lost his fucking mind to do this, where he could have easily taken the Donbass region, made his point, and then just said, we got a little more buffer zone here. I've expanded Russia's territory. These people that want to be part of it, great. This just doesn't make sense. That's what scared me. This doesn't make sense. And when something doesn't make sense to this level, you have to wonder what is the next step. I've already seen people talking about regime change in Russia. Good luck with that. Good fucking luck with that. But anyway, that's the Russian situation. Now, the interesting thing, too, about Russia and Ukraine is that we're seeing, to the highlight of libertarianism, right, and the concept of you don't need a standing military, you're seeing civilians arm themselves, right, and and fight back. We are seeing yet another example, as America has learned so many times again in Vietnam, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in anywhere else we've gone after World War II, we're seeing the effectiveness of a motivated population protecting their home where they know the land, they know the landscape, they have the, you know, the opposition doesn't necessarily know who's fighting and who's not, but they are armed and they're motivated, effectively repulsing a much better armed, coordinated, and funded force. And Russia right now, even though you're you're reading the stories about them bombing these different regions, Russia is losing this war. As far as the goals, as far as the effectiveness of their text, they are losing this war. So that's interesting. Not only that, but also here's an example in free market economics insofar as warfare is concerned, guys. I mentioned Ukraine doesn't have, or Ukraine doesn't necessarily have the military, but they have security forces, Right. And they have security forces right now offering bounties of $1,000 for any Ukrainian that blows up an enemy tank. Now, yes, this is risk that you take on as a citizen of that country, but $1,000, 1,000 euros, wherever it might be, 1,000 hungo bucks or not hungo bucks, Ukrainian rubles, whatever the fuck they're using there. That is a potent incentive, not only for you as a citizen, as a patriot of your nation, right, who you already motivated to want to get these Russians the hell out of your backyard, but now they're going to give you money for it. Here's the free market, guys. What's your risk level? What's your risk assessment? And it's 500 bucks for like any other vehicle, you know, Jeeps and whatnot to, to blow them up. There's Molotov cocktails are stuck in. They're providing javelins to take out tanks. You are now using the marketplace to incentivize your own population to join the battle. You without conscription, right? You're not drafting people to go out and fight there. You're not forcing them like the Russians did back in the days, you know, by marching behind them with Gatling guns. If they turn tail and try to run the other direction, you shoot them down. No, you're incentivizing them with money. Money talks. There's a reason mercenaries exist in the world. There's a reason that Blackwater is so successful. There's a reason that people will go out and risk their lives for something they don't necessarily believe in. But if you combine patriotism with 
that monetary incentive, especially when you're being invaded, well, looky here. Now you've got your own homegrown force motivated to go out there and fight against an invading army. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. So anyway, guys, again, I own that I was completely wrong on this whole situation. I gave you my reasoning for it and uh, my assessment as it stands now. So we'll see if that assessment holds up. Uh, another topic I want to get to today before we talk to uh, to Mark. So a couple of things. Sean Penn, what a fucking asshole. I hate Sean Penn. I've always hated Sean Penn. Uh, I think he's a blowhard and I can't stand his politics. I can't stand his face, if I'm being perfectly honest. It's funny that Sean is known for punching people, but yet has one of the most punchable faces I've ever seen. Uh, not in a Sandman way, just in a general good old fashioned. God, that guy looks like a dick and he is a dick. But Sean Penn, of course, that of a, a preaching, that of bleeding heart causes, has now taken it upon himself to go over and document what's happening in the Ukraine. Now, this on its own is not a huge problem, right? You'd say, well, Sean, you, you're risking your own life. And that's what, for anybody that says America should go and join this, well, I've got good news for you. Zelensky, the president of the Ukraine, or of Ukraine, just said he's removing all restrictions on foreigners coming and fighting for the Ukrainian cause. So good. All of you out there, all of you warmongering, rah-rah, America needs to go out and fight this. Good news. America doesn't have to go and fight it. You can go and fight it. You can go put the money where your mouth is. Maybe you could go make yourself some uh, thousand Ukrainian super bucks for blowing up a tank. But good news, you don't have to go and say on your soapbox on Facebook or on Twitter that we need to get involved and in, that we need to send our troops over there because you can do it. Let's see how many of you do. It's open. The invite's there. Because I guarantee not one of you little keyboard cowboy pussies is going to get on there, take a plane over, and go fight for the Ukrainians. You're happy to send someone else to do it that signed up to protect the country and didn't know that they were going to be shipped off to the middle of nowhere with nothing to do with them to go and fight a war that they don't know anybody, they have no vested interest in whatsoever, and bleed out far from home. They don't need to do that. And you don't have a right to tell them to because you can go do it yourself. So put your money where your mouth is. Get your ass to Ukraine. And if you don't, shut the fuck up. Get off Twitter. Shut the fuck up. Go lie in the bedroom. Put on some emo music because you're a fucking pussy and you don't know anything you're talking about. You got no guts to follow through on it. So stay away from the rest of us. Now. Let's get into, I want to I talk about SNL. Saturday Night Live actually had one of the very few funny skits of the last 20 years. And as always, Saturday Night Live got into this way too late, right? It, it, they should have done this sketch a, a year ago. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save it because I'm going to talk about the SCOTUS selection first. And, uh, and then we'll finish with Saturday Night Live before I talk to Mark Milkey. But let's talk about the SCOTUS. They did, they, uh, Saturday Night Live, they did a sketch called Dinner Conversation. And it's about masking and COVID, right? But before we get to that, I want to talk about the SCOTUS pick. Now, Katanji Brown-Jackson, who I, of course, joked that Biden literally picked the blackest name he could, right? I, I this, this, She's got fine qualifications, but I am 100% confident, confident that Biden was given a list. And as I was joking with Rico and Howie and Odie on our, you know, we have the, the boring podcast, which uh, is our comedy podcast, um, we we're on a text chain and I, I was like, this is I was like, what are the odds that Biden turned down eight chicks named Susan or Kathy and picked, uh, went through the list and went, oh, Katanji, Katanji Jackson Brown. That's, that sounds black. Hell, that's real black. You got to go with that girl. 
I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. There's no fucking doubt in my mind that that's how he picked this person. But I was reading about her decisions, her background, and there is something to like here. Now, there's not a, there's not a lot to like when it comes to labor law. She has a bad history of supporting unions, but I'll grant they're unions against the federal government, which I guess, you know, 50-50 toss it up. But overall, the power of unions, I don't like her stances on that. But I'll tell you where she has some good potential. And that is that she has a background wherein her parents were directly impacted by the war on drugs. She has uh, provided insight before into sentencing, giving judges more leeway instead of having mandatory sentencing. You know, the three strike Clinton bill to get under the you're going to jail for a minimum of 20 years because you possessed, you know, crack cocaine or whatever it might be. She has fought back against that, which is great. She also could be a real ally in finally attacking the drug war tangibly. So I'm curious to see how this weighs in. If there is a if there is a challenge to the prohibition on a drug war, if there is a challenge to sentencing laws, how she can get her influence in there, where she's going to rule on it. And they're saying that as far as judges go, she, despite the fact that people are crying, you know, the squads of the world are crying, the squad, which is doing a rebuttal. If you were a member of our Patreon, you could hear my my good morning fuckhead rant about this and how the Democrats are imbeciles. The squad is going to be doing a rebuttal to Joe Biden. Literally the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. It is undermining him and giving ammo to their opposition at all points. Like I, I just can't believe it. it's such a blunder. It's, it blows my mind how stupid it is. But again, go to patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty or lionsofliberty.locals, and you can join, get my morning rants. Good morning, fuckhead. Uh, get the South Park recaps, which we're doing again now, me and Dan Smots. Get the Conspiracy Corners, which we're recording. Get all the good stuff. But, as I said, um, the progressives really wanted somebody that was rabidly left. But meanwhile, this, this chick actually might be pretty, you know, centrist Democrat, when it comes down to it, I mean, well, you never know until they get in there, but she could be a lot better than we think. Definitely better than Sotomayor. Um, she might even not, she might not even be as left as Breyer. So we'll see. But I just want to share with that, that little bit of insight in there that we could on one of the biggest issues, right? The war on drugs is still, we don't talk about it enough anymore because all this other shit with COVID is going on and foreign policy is going on and the Fed and inflation is going on. The drug war guys is still out there. It is still a prime driver of inequality. It is still a prime driver of sentencing, of uh, people's lives being ruined for nonviolent measures. And as I'm going to talk to you with Mark Milky coming up here, also, a driver of if there is a real thing called systematic injustice or systematic racism, it's the war on drugs. So let's not forget that is out there. It is still one of the top three, probably uh, yeah, by by far, maybe even maybe even the single most important issue for libertarians, in my opinion, still to this day because of the wide ranging impact it has. But this chick might be good on. It. Okay, let me get through to the Saturday Night Live sketch, and then I'll wrap that up and I'll bring in my interview with Mark. So. What I'm going to do here, because I don't want to get pulled from YouTube and they will they will uh, either demonetize or force me to clip it out on YouTube. So what I'm going to do here is if you watch the video, hopefully even hopefully just playing the video isn't going to get pulled down. But if you're not watching on YouTube, go to join on Odyssey. Odyssey is not censoring us. We love that platform. We're on there. You can watch all of our videos on Odyssey. So go over there and find it. But I'm going to play the video in the background muted. 
that should stop me from getting, uh, hopefully auto flagged by algorithms, but who knows, you know, if, if it's just the video and they can pick that up, uh, that might do it too. So I'm going to play the video behind me as I talk through this, this little segment and talk about this SNL skit, which as I said, is about a year too late because what has happened here is that, hold on, let me pause this. So what has happened here is that SNL finally has come around to the realization that yes, these fucking COVID protocols don't do anything, right? Now this opens up, they're at a dinner party. You got John Mulaney in there who is very leftist, but also very funny. Uh, he's sitting with Kate McKinnon and, uh, what is his name? Fucking the, the chubby black guy and, you know, the whole, the whole cavalcade, every color of the rainbow is represented and also a fat check. <laughs> there is a good way to describe it. So basically they're sitting down to dinner and they're talking about how, Oh, you know, I heard the CDC uh, mask mandates, you know, they're going to get rolled back. And then, of course, everybody kind of uh, tenses up. And that's the point of this thing, how awkward the conversation is, even when you're telling the truth. So Kate McKinnon starts talking about how she read an article and everybody always just just saying that they react just when she says, oh, I read an article like her husband. Oh, leave it, leave it, leave it. Don't talk about it. Everybody tenses up about how the masks aren't effective, how the mask mandates had little to no effect, right? And everybody freezes and they do this thing. Like you see, it, you know, people, gums falling out of their mouths. People are shattering glasses in their hands during this moment because they all realize that the conversation is taking a place where it's, it's going towards taboo land. But they go on to talk not only about the mask mandates doing nothing. They also talk about how the vaccines have not been effective and how they don't necessarily think that vaccines should be forced on people and that the people that don't want to get vaccines have a point. And of course, everybody also responds the same thing. Oh no, oh no. Then they also talk about the stupidity of restaurants and masking. They talk about kids going in and she's like, I took my kid to a, to a child's birthday party and they were all wearing masks inside the gym. And then they took the masks off to eat pizza. So did they even have to wear the masks? And again, the whole time. The, the skit is actually very funny because not only are they finally accepting the reality, but they're talking it through and showcasing just how people react to this shit, how they are acting as though these topics are so taboo. I mean, at one point, John Mulaney talks about how maybe he didn't need to cut his best friend out of their, out of his life because he didn't get a booster. Uh, Keenan, uh, I want to say Keenan Ivory Wayans, and it's not his name. Keenan Ivory Wayans, by the way, very talented comedian. I'm going to get you, sucker. Fantastic. I just can't remember his fucking name, whatever his name is, Keenan. But he's sitting there and he goes, you know, why do these government stooges, you know, he doesn't call them stooges, why do these government actors get to say that the science has changed when they got it wrong and they failed? He goes, I can't do my job. And if I fuck up, say the science has changed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You can't say that. But yet the government gets away with it, right? So the point of this sketch really is it's a very well done sketch. It is legitimately funny. It hits on all the points that we have been talking about for a year. And that's my problem with it is that it hits on the points of the last year in late February of 2022, right? So 
Saturday Night Live, thank you for your service. Thank you for finally coming around to the reality that is all around us. But it would have been culturally appropriate to do it a year ago. However, the silver lining of this, of course, is that if Saturday Night Live, if ultra-progressive, scared of its own shadow for offending anyone on the remote left, let alone, you know, they're happy to offend the right side of the country because they know that the right side of the country hasn't watched that show in decades. I haven't watched that show in decades. If they are finally able to make fun of this and call the spade a spade, that shows you that the broader cultural context, the broader progressive base is thinking this. So there is your, as they used to say on The Daily Show, maybe they still do, there is your moment of Zen, guys. There is your white pill for the day. Uh, If Saturday Night Live is willing to do it, then we might just be coming out of this thing just in time for nuclear war. All right. Uh, before further ado, I'm going to get into my interview with Mark Milkey, uh, the author of Victim Cult. So please enjoy. All right. So as promised, I am here with my guest today, a man who has uh, written a book that is touching on one of the key topics that I'm interested in. I think we all are because it's such an overreaching pain, a thorn in all of our sides, which is victim culture. It is Mark Milkey, who is the author of The Victim Cult and also the head of a new think tank starting up in Canada. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Brian. Uh, it is a pleasure, sir. And we were introduced actually by uh, a mutual acquaintance, Fergus Hodgson, who I have nothing but respect for. Uh, love that guy. So a big shout out to Fergus. And um, tell me a little bit about, you know, you're in Canada. Before we jump into the victim culture, uh, how are things up north? How are things in Canada and, <laughs> and everything well, you're dealing with right now? That's a wide open question, of course. Um, well, we had the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa, as you probably know. It's one of the few times that, you know, Canada gets coverage around the world. Um, <laughs> now, look, you know, I don't agree with, you know, demands that, you know, prime ministers have to resign unless their agenda is met any more than I think, you know, uh, people should be able to show up, you know, uh, <laughs> and demand any elected government resign. Uh, there's a process to all that. Nonetheless, um, it was a signal of great frustration up here. Unlike, say, the United States, we don't have a lot of what I'd call direct uh, democratic, uh, you know, pushback mechanisms, right? We don't have recall in most of most of Canada. Uh, referendums are very few. So you guys in San, you know, you guys, woke San Franciscans get to recall three school board trustees who wanted to rename schools just because, just because they're named mm-hmm. after Abraham Lincoln. That's crazy. We don't really have those mechanisms for the most part up in Canada, and I wish we did. So uh, that's something I want to work on at the new think tank. But um, we're like pretty suffused with victim culture up here. I mean, if you think the United States is bad for, you know, people say, you know, my status today is due to something you or your ancestors did 50 or 200 or 1,000 years ago, um, come to Canada because it's even worse up here for that kind of thinking. Yeah. I'm shocked to see how how accelerated that process has been in Canada. I mean, I, I'm yeah. shaking my head. Obviously, you know, Jordan Peterson and everything that's happened to him is one example. But just in general, I I had made this observation a couple of shows ago about how the United States, in so many ways, leads culture, right? And you know, as far as I think starting this woke nonsense movement and the victim culture movement, but. Yeah, to see Canada just run with it, to see the way the UK has run with it. And of course, there's a lot of shared overlap there. Uh, you know, obviously, a love of the monarchy still exists for some bizarre reason in Canada. But you know, why do you think that is that Canada has just taken this and run with it so hard compared to the US? 
Well, wow, that's a big question. I think I think a lot of reasons. I mean, why you know some Canadians anyway are into victimology, if I can put it. Um, I think part of it is an attack on Western civilization that happens in Canada, like the rest of you know English speaking countries, where there's this historic guilt now over you know an imperfect past. Well, welcome to the world, right? Um, as I write about in the victim cult, it, look, I mean, to, to look back in history and say, look, it wasn't perfect and your ancestors picked on my ancestors or the reverse and then feel guilty over it and claim that, you know, maybe you're a, vic- you're, you're a benefit, uh, you're a beneficiary of privilege. You know, I mean, that's that's a common kind of refrain these days among some, not me. I don't, I, I don't suffer from liberal white guilt at all. <laughs> but uh, for those who do suffer from that, I mean, they're looking back and going, oh, isn't it awful that the world wasn't perfect? Yeah, it wasn't perfect. Uh, but the key is comparisons. I mean, for example, um, you know, I came across some great stuff about the city of Victoria. This is, you know, speaking of monarchs, you know, the Queen, mm-hmm. the city of Victoria in British Columbia was named after Queen Victoria. Well, in 1862, they're welcoming Black Californians because we're a more tolerant country up here, you know. And, and of course, slavery hasn't ended yet in the United States. Even, you know, and, and free Californians, you know, mm-hmm. Black Californians though are suffering from terrible prejudice in that state, even though it's not a slave state. So, I mean, you know, Canada, was was Canada perfect in 1862? No. Um, you know, is the, was the United States perfect in 1776? No. But I think both countries had the right ideals, which is the individual matters. And, you know, over time, of course, what has happened in both countries is, you know, the dream of Martin Luther King Jr. has been actualized. Let's look at character. Let's look at, you know, your merit. Let's look at other stuff other than your skin color. And we finally got to a place where that was starting to happen. And then, whoa, all of a sudden, everybody looks back and says, history wasn't perfect. And I think my status today is a result of something your ancestors did to my ancestors. Wow, really? That's that's a stretch. Uh, and I, Long answer, short question. I just think Canadians actually have a natural... A little more left wing, and I think that's the influence of Quebec, which is about twenty five percent of the mm-hmm. population. I mean, imagine if France was stuck in the middle of the United States, <laughs> you know, and and yeah. was you know twenty five thirty percent of the population, it would pull your politics left and collectivist, and I think that explains a good chunk of what's happening in Canada. In addition to, you know, if the American, you know, if you you in the United States have an conservative president, for example, uh, the left in Canada reacts to that, Um, you know, and then the anti-Americanism comes out. So um, like a 15 year old, the left in Canada will do something opposite of what's happening in the United States. Uh, although it doesn't seem to work in reverse. When Democrats are down there, like Osama bin Laden. <laughs> right, right. no. <laughs> um, not, that really was unintentional. Like Barack Obama, um, uh, you know, it just, uh, you don't have the same effect. I mean, all of a sudden the Canadian left worships uh, an American president in that case. So we've got a weird, you know, insecurity up here vis-a-vis the United States and have probably had it since you kicked out United Empire loyalists in 1776. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, you bring up the topic of history and that's something that has also rubbed me the wrong way insofar as, as you said, this, this guilt that people feel or saying that, oh, well, my, my ancestors were wronged and you ran, ran roughshod over them. Number one, I always think to sit back and say, okay, there were, it was a much more difficult time, right? People seem to project backwards into history, the comforts we have today, the communications, the trade, all these things were evolving, right? So there was no simple time. And it was for decades upon decades, millennia, a culture of conquering. You know, that was, it was a true battle for life and death over well, resources. Well, it still is, isn't it? I mean, that. you know, look at well, Ukraine, yeah. it still is. Uh, that's <laughs> unfortunately the history of the world. But uh, yep. look, you're onto something. I think the mistake, and I write about this in the victim cult, I mean, think about the last century. I mean, at least communists looked to the future and envisioned a utopia. They were dead wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a free marketer. I'm a free enterpriser. Uh, I think they were dead wrong, obviously, about the economic system and how to get to prosperity. 
Uh, nonetheless, I mean, the least, you know, one thing you can say for them is they weren't trying to recreate, you know, a utopia in the past. You've got people today who look back and weirdly get disappointed because the past wasn't perfect. I think the way to kind of correct that is what Thomas Sowell talked about, you know, these cosmic utopians, basically, um, or cosmic justice, rather. Well, you can't correct the past. And you can, all, all you end up doing is creating new victims in the present. So if you're going to say, well, my your group picked on my group, and now my group gets to pick on your group, guess who that hurts? Individuals on the ground. I mean, a, a great concrete example is affirmative action, you know, racial and gender quotas. I mean, if you're going to make up for what you think is the effect of past, you know, discrimination upon employment and incomes today, you're going to have to find somebody to make a victim today, uh, you know, and make them victim of a quota system. So, um, the, and, and they make the same mistake over again, which is you're, you're not paying attention to the individual. I mean, that's always been the mistake in history. And mm -hmm. it's the mistake now. You have to look at the individual and treat the individual as equal in law and policy. And because our forefathers didn't do that at some point in the distant past, doesn't give people the right to do that again today based on, you know, com comparing collectives and, you know, U.S. census data. So I, I think that's that's part of the problem, Brian, is that people just don't get that they're making the same mistake under new justifications, which is not treating the individual as an individual. Right. Well, you talk about in the book um, the fake victim, as you call it, the fake victimhood of 20-something totalitarians. And it is definitely interesting, I mean, not only with what's happening with COVID and totalitarianism expanding, but even prior to that, you know, the censorship environments, um, the ways in which these the millennial generation wants to force something through, not even, I guess, pre-millennials now, the 20-somethings, you know, want to force people to think, to act, to stay in lockstep with this ideology. I mean, why do you think it is this generation specifically that has kicked this into high gear? Good question. Uh, maybe 35 years away from the fall of the Berlin Wall or almost 35 years. They can't compare East Berlin to West Berlin, for example. It's not top of mind. Um, and maybe just the normal self-righteousness of youth, right? I mean, most of us mm -hmm. were 16 or 20. We think we know it all, right? Um, and then, you know, we grow up and we find uh, our parents have learned so much, right? <laughs> right. Um, I think that's part of it, right? There's a self-righteousness that comes with youth. Um, there's a natural desire to want to change the world for the better. So that's not a bad impulse, but it combines with this unrealistic notion that, you know, words can change everything um, or that, you know, there's one cause, right? And that's, that's the great myth today. And that's what I write about in the chapter on Black Lives Matter and the victim cult. The notion that racism is responsible for all differences in outcomes between groups when you compare them like in the census data, for example. I mean, this is Ibrahim Kendi, right? I mean, everything is due to racism. No, family breakdown matters. Educational level levels matter. Yeah. Um, culture matters. If you live in the American South, you know, in the South, um, I mean, we know that on, on average, incomes are lower in the South. So if you have a greater proportion of Black Americans in the South, which is the case, then Black Americans on average are going to have lower incomes as a result of that factor alone. Um, so there's all these other factors. Uh, but it's much easier when you're 20, perhaps, to latch onto a simple theory like, oh, racism explains all. Um, and I guess the other problem is you haven't lived long enough at 20, with respect, uh, unless you read a lot of history by the time you're 20. You haven't lived long enough to understand uh, history and, and actually how good we have it today. And that a systemically racist society is one where you can't go into a cafe because you're black or you can't live in certain neighborhoods because you're Chinese. That doesn't exist in the United States today. It hasn't since, what, at least the 1960s in the case of black Americans. So I think it's a lack of historical perspective as well on the part of some, not not all, some millennials. 
Well, you mentioned, of course, Thomas Sowell, who, uh, you know, I, I think is a, an absolutely brilliant person. May he never die. But, um, you know, he had talked about in, in several of his different books that I was reading, just what you're keying on there, specifically in regards to Black America and, and talking about culture, talking about opportunity, talking about um, the the culture of, and I think a lot of this is also due to, you know, a lot of the drug war and, and instances where when people talk about a an unjust society. When we talk about systematic racism, right? There's instances where I can point and say, you got it right in this regard. You know, exactly the, the drug war would be an example of that for me, wherein a systematic a systematic application of a goal to eradicate drugs has disproportionately targeted a certain portion of the population, predominantly black America. But it is not the end-all be-all. As you said, you know, one of the biggest indicators of social mobility, of economic mobility, is an intact family unit. So that comes back to culture in addition to the drug war, um, to your point. And yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head and a lot of these generation of, of millennials just don't see that or they've been, they've imbibed a portrait of reality in mainstream media and leftist culture. And maybe let's talk a little bit about that too, is do you think the predominant culture of entertainment is also playing in perfectly to this ideology and to this victim cult. Well, probably because again, Hollywood, I mean, Hollywood's a cliche, you know, mainstream media is a cliche, but let's go with it for a moment. I mean, there is some diversity uh, not as much as you want <laughs> in, in, in uh, traditional media and in Hollywood, uh, maybe even less so in Hollywood. Um, but uh, yeah, there's something to that. But I mean, think about the mindset of actors or script writers or, you know, films in general, they're stories. And um, they're artists. And in essence, they have a blank canvas upon which they can paint whatever they want. So you can create a romantic vision of the world in two hours and solve everyone's problems. Um, you can also be self-righteous because, you know, you're not doing the hard work of, you know, Thomas Sowell, we've just talked about, of empirical data dives, right? Most, yeah. most people don't do that, and especially Hollywood actors and screenwriters uh, and scriptwriters. So uh, you can create this wonderful story. Um, I mean, a good example of this was, uh, what's the movie that came out a couple of years ago? Crazy Rich Asians or something like what was yeah, the, um, Crazy Rich Asians, yeah. right. I thought it was a great movie, except for the beginning where they show like this massive amount of racism in some London hotel in 1995. I mean, <laughs> London, England, this was <laughs> yeah. the most cosmopolitan city a century ago where Mahatma Gandhi and his colleagues praised London as, you know, tolerant of them in like 1905 or whatever mm -hmm. it was. So, uh, I mean, I think Hollywood simplifies things. And again, if you don't do your deep reading of history and have a better understanding of, of you know, well, of, of flows in history and the realities of history, you can swallow this stuff and go, yeah, London must have been really racist in 1995 because you were one year old and you don't know any better. Really? Uh, so I think I think Hollywood, uh, you know, the, the entertainment sector in particular obviously doesn't help this. And it's all, you know, if it leads, it bleeds. That's an old, you know, saying in the media. It's true of Hollywood as well. And so, again, I think people make the wrong cause and effect links. It's really difficult to think about culture, family breakdown, educational levels, geography as possible causes for differences in outcomes between different cohorts. But I mean, one clear example, which I think, you know, defeats the notion where you live in some systemically racist society in the United States, is East Indian American incomes. They're at the top of the mm -hmm. scale. Same with Taiwanese or you know, Chinese American incomes, if they come from Taiwan or Hong Kong. Uh, or even Americans Somalian Americans in the United yeah. States, you know, yeah. their, their income levels are, are absolutely um, astronomical. Off the charts. To many yeah. Groups. yeah. But it also happens to be the fact they're the most educated among the population. They've got the most, you know, the greatest proportion of degrees, you know, Taiwanese mm -hmm. Americans, East Indian Americans. So, um, you know, hyphenations aside, that's just the reality. 
And so I, I don't know that uh, much of this seems to sink through at the university level these days. And maybe it's, you know, it's, it's the modern version of, of uh, you know, a passionate belief. You know, it's, it's replaced the rule of religion. And so it feels much better to whip yourself and pretend that your privilege has led, to you, led you to Yale. Um, and so, you know, you've got to make up for that somehow, uh, you know, wearing hair shirts and the rest of it. So, uh, but I do think it's a problem because in the victim cult, I described mild, moderate and murderous victim cults. I mean, Yale is on the, on the mild side, you know, uh, nobody's getting killed. Um, cultural revolution, though it may be at Yale and other universities these days, you know, no one's quite doing a Mao style culture revolution or Camera Rouge, but it is on the mild side for sure. It, but it is a victim cult narrative and, and mentality, and it's not helpful. Uh, because actually you don't address real problems in real people's lives then. Yeah. Well, we, we talk about history and I, I want to touch on something before we move on to another topic. And, you know, we talk about the totalitarianism, right, of these younger people, how they don't understand history, but also how they, you know, you're saying they're self-flagellating and they want to, to pretend they're victim, but also they want to punish people who don't agree with them while viewing themselves as victims, punishing those who disagree with uh, the victim ideology. So, Something I thought was interesting in the book is that Hitler, of course, mm. everybody wants to call everybody else Hitler. It is the go-to comment of the day. It seems that you can't read a news article without Hitler being shoved in there or whoever, you know, whatever the Hitler du jour is. But Hitler himself was essentially the head of a victim cult. And I think that's a fascinating juxtaposition to make today as these people call everybody Hitler and go into the victim ideology. So tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Well, and of course, if everyone is Adolf Hitler, then no one is, right? And that actually is very dangerous because you're not taking seriously what happened in Nazi Germany and what led to it. Well, what led to it? Most people probably have a sense that Germans after the Versailles Treaty felt victimized. In the victim cult, I actually take apart the Versailles Treaty. Germans were not victimized in the way that people think they were with the Versailles Treaty. It was actually more generous than people give it credit for. And in fact, Germans victimized themselves by running up inflation so they could pay off their war debts and worthless German marks. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I dispute that in the victim cult. But going back further and Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, long before they came along, Germans thought of themselves as victims. And there's a very good reason for this, because they were. At the end of the 18th century, they were occupied by France. Early 19th century, the Germans kicked them out of the territories they're in, the German territories they were in. And Germans begin to try and search for a, you know, identity, a renewed identity. What does it mean to be German, right? Because and it's almost a psychological response. You get beat up mm -hmm. and you think, what did I do wrong? Or how can I protect myself the next time? Well, we need to be stronger. And so you kind of search for this identity as an individual, and in this case, as a nation. What they did, though, is they lapsed back into romanticism about German history. They go back like 600 years to Frederick the Great when he was busy conquering Europe, like German leaders seem to do every couple of centuries. <laughs> and, um, you know, they begin to romanticize this. And what's a pure German? Well, a pure German isn't Jewish. A pure German, pure, pure German isn't English. They didn't like free markets. They were collectivists. And so they came up with this cultural notion of what it meant to be German. Now, they worship pure culture. We're back into that today. All sorts of movements think that the solution to say, you know, a stronger black America is to be culturally black or in, in you know, in indigenous matters, to be culturally indigenous. You mm -hmm. see this all over the place. It's actually very dangerous. In Germany's case, they began to be in this victim narrative. You know, we're victims of everyone, of the English, of the Jews, of people not like us. And this was around for a long time before Adolf Hitler came along. And uh, later in the 19th century, this notion of cultural purity combines with the notion of race purity. And then later on, this is glommed onto by the Nazis and Adolf Hitler. Oddly enough, um, Adolf Hitler even thought of himself as a victim. In the victim cult, I write about how like in 1910, he's in Vienna, he buys a lottery ticket, he doesn't win, 
and he complains to whoever's listening at this point, his friend or someone who writes this down, uh, that he's a victim of the universe, basically, which didn't allow him to win a lottery. <laughs> like, think about the craziness of this. And as he's in his final days in World War II, Adolf Hitler blames Winston Churchill. He bl blames Franklin Roosevelt. He blames the Jews, of course. He blames well, everyone course, else yeah. for starting the war that he started. But he's a victim. And he's right. a victim even of his own people. So, I mean, think about the craziness of this. The subtitle to the to the victim cult is how the grievance culture hurts everyone and wrecks civilizations. And what I meant by that last bit was Hitler and the Nazis not only destroyed the land of Bach and Beethoven, a you know, pleasant pastoral you know, place that you know has lots of fatty food and nice flowers and nice music and turn it into the land known for Dachau. Not only do they destroy their own civilization, they almost destroy ours in the English world, right? And on the cover of the victim cult, I have a picture of St. Paul's Cathedral, um, which is, uh, and just after the Blitz, where you see smoke rising from around St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, the Germans, the Nazis almost destroyed our civilization. So these victim cults, you know, they can be mild like at Yale where woe is me, I'm victim of a microaggression, but they can be murderous in some extreme cases like the case of Nazi Germany. They thought of themselves as victims. They weren't, but they created a lot of new vic real victims in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems also that, you know, there's you talk in the book as well about, you know, how we have to stand up against or, or stand for um, I guess in opposition of the victimization of history, but also how you know, and we talked about this at the beginning of the interview, Western civilization, and, and I mentioned how people become too confident, too complacent, and then look to tear down from the inside, you know, and that's what I feel victim culture is now is they're looking to sacrifice. It's almost like, you know, don't sacrifice the good for the greater. I, I'm thinking of the exact phrase. Don't let the enemy of uh, the good be the perfect. Something don't let the perfect lines. be the enemy of the good. Yeah. Thank you. There we go. Yeah. I reversed. Yeah. I, I verbally dyslexized that. Yeah, no so. Worries. Uh, so, you know, it seems that is what is happening. You know, mm -hmm. these people are willing to throw away everything that we've achieved, everything. I mean, me growing up, mm -hmm. and I'm I'm 42, right? When I was growing up, it was be colorblind. Everybody's the same. Mm -hmm. Very Martin Luther King. You know, your character is defined by who you are, not the color of your skin. And that was really what it felt like we were working towards. And now that has been flipped on its head, torn asunder. You have people at Harvard mm -hmm. telling you, you know, like a prominent professor at Harvard said, you know, you can only judge people by the color of your skin. And if you don't, you're a racist. I mean, they are looking to tear down mm -hmm. all of the benefits, all of the advancements of Western civilization in this effort to chase the perfect and seemingly have no cognition or no recognition mm -hmm. of the damage they're doing. Um, I, I, how do we fight this? You know, I mean, yeah. well, uh, we, we fight it perhaps by identifying it. We fight it perhaps it's a bit like, and this is one of the reasons I wrote the victim cult. I think, you know, people will get tired of this monocausal explanation if they're the least bit curious. Um, and it's a bit like, you know, when you, when you walk by a restaurant and you're not, you know, you're not hungry yet. You don't even think you're hungry. Maybe it's 4 PM. You're on vacation. You know, you're not hungry yet. And then you walk by a restaurant and you smell some, some wonderful food. Maybe you smell a steak or I don't know, maybe you smell some, something, some dish that wafts into your nostrils. And you're like, I think I'm going to have that for dinner. All of a sudden you recognize you're hungry. I think it's a, a bit like that intellectually as well, where if you're, if you're given simplistic explanations for too long and you're the least bit curious, or they don't seem to, you know, work really uh, as a solution to whatever the, the problem that's being identified is, then eventually you, you start to become hungry for a, a better explanation, you know, better food, or in this case, a better explanation. And I think that's that's a little bit of what's happening now. But I think um, I think you're onto something. I think part of it is as well, it's much tougher to do the hard work of change, right? Mm -hmm. 
And it's much harder to be honest about maybe your own community. I mean, I, look, I'm, I'm not a collectivist, so I don't take responsibility for everybody else that has my skin color or, or, or whatever. I mean, so I don't care about that stuff. But for those who think this is a priority, it's more difficult to be perhaps self-critical. In, in The Victim Cult, I started out by writing about the narrative of Adam and Eve and, and Cain and Abel. Well, you know, for those who don't know their Sunday school lessons, Cain and Abel are, you know. Sadly, the, I do. Okay. Yeah, well, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, they are the characters. And um you know, the, the sons of, of Adam and Eve. And the story is, is that they both offer a sacrifice to God. Um, all of a sudden, it turns out, uh, you know, God's not a vegetarian. He likes meat and he rejects uh, Cain's, uh, you know, offering of vegetables. Cain's mad. And the traditional Sunday school lesson is don't get mad. Don't be bitter. Um, just do the right thing and your sacrifice will be accepted. You know, bring me the right sacrifice. Now, <clears throat> there's ways to interpret this. Um, I, I, I have a little bit of, you know, clever fun with it this way. I think, well, maybe we should sympathize with Cain. Maybe, you know, how's he supposed to know, you know, that God's not, you know, in favor of vegetables today, you know, and that he only wants meat as a sacrifice. Um, you know, maybe Cain has a right to be angry. Uh, but instead of actually confronting the source of his woe, God, like some other Old Testament characters do, Cain does what we often do. Uh, we get lazy. We look around for someone to blame. He blames his own brother. Um, and then he murders his own brother. And when God confronts him on this, he, he evades responsibility again, which is a, typical of a victim, right? They won't look at themselves, their, their role in creating the situation they're in. Even if we should sympathize with them initially, they go too far. They create a new victim as Cain does. And even when God confronts him, he doesn't take responsibility and says, am I my brother's keeper? Um, and you can almost see the sneer on his face. And, um, and he thinks of himself as a victim. And isn't this just like, you know, the fake victims anyway that we know? I don't mean real victims. You know, we should have compassion for those. But I mean, the fake victims that we know, it's never their fault. It's always someone else's fault. They won't look or, you know, in terms of societal discussions, well, it's never about education. It's never about culture. It's never about family breakdown. It's never about anything else. It's just about racism. Really? Okay. Uh, that's a monocausal explanation. Um, so I think, but I think this is part of human nature. I think it's just easier to go there. It's much tougher to do the hard work of reforming ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. I, I never really thought about that, uh, the Cain and Abel story that way, but that's really appropriate. Uh, and I think spot on now I, with the last few minutes we have left, uh, together, I wanted to talk about, you know, you have a personal story at the end of the book, which I thought mm -hmm. was pretty interesting because you talk about your grandparents. You talk about, of course, your family was from Poland and was booted out basically, uh, during the communist uh, revolution there and takeover. So tell me a little bit about that because I liked the moral of the way in which your grandparents lived and carried themselves versus what we look around with today. So tell us a little bit about that. Ukraine and Poland, actually. Uh, Germans in Ukraine and Poland. And uh, this chapter at the end of The Victim Cult, you're right, it comes in because I'm trying to say, listen, be careful how much you blame on the distant past. Uh, you can make up, comp you can compensate people for something you did yesterday. So in the late 1700s, the Quakers compensate the slaves they freed they they understood they had they'd done a grow a, a, you know a terrible evil against black americans they compensated them but these days when you look back to reparation arguments for example you look back 150 200 years and people saying well we should compensate my point in this last chapter in the book is actually our own choices often lead to are, are much more explain much more the further you go back, I think the weaker other people's choices have an effect on you, my, my parents, my grandparents. So I bring in my grandparents to say, look, my grandmother, three years old, they leave Ukraine as Germans in 1914, end up in Latvia. They're trying to cross the sea to Canada. World War I starts. 
they don't go anywhere. And they basically circle around Europe for about 13 years. They go back to Ukraine, they end up in Siberia, the Marxists show up, you know, they get booted out of there. They finally come to Canada in the late 1920s. On my, uh, my grandfather from Poland, a German living there, leaves also late 1920s. They suffer through the Great Depression. My grandmother lost two of her sisters when she was wandering around Ukraine, Siberia, Central Europe in the 1920s. Now, they come to Canada eventually. They suffer through the Great Depression, though. Um, now, the thing is, um, you know, they, they made the most of what they found in Canada. And I remember growing up um, where I'd see the red roses out in the front garden and the fruits and vegetables in the back garden. And I think those were reminders, my grandma's case anyway, of, you know, perhaps the fruits and vegetables she saw as a kid growing up in Ukraine and, and Central Europe. I'm, I'm almost positive it was. Um, but I never heard them complain. And uh, they were just grateful for the Canada they came to, full of peace and prosperity. And to me, this says something, because my grandmother was a victim. Um, I mean, in her case, not only did she lose two sisters, one time I saw her sign a document with an X, and I asked my dad, I said, why didn't grandma sign her name? And he said, well, she never learned how to read or write, right? She, she was a child, uh, basically a child refugee for you know, 13, 14 years, um, worked on a farm, and never learned how to read or write, never went to school. And so, and yet I never heard my grandmother complain. Um, she kind of brought the best of the past, right? The fruits and vegetables, the red roses, um, very German of her, you know, perfect garden. And uh, from the past into, into her present, uh, where I grew up in a, in a very pleasant town in Southern British Columbia, a bit like the Napa Valley. And so that was my grandmother and my grandfather my, was the same. And so I think that speaks to something because, you know, I, I could try and blame my past on what happened in the 1920s. Well, if only, if only my grandparents had, had done X, Y, or Z, I'd be better off today. Well, you can kind of make that argument to a little bit, but listen, uh, the further you go back, um, really your own choices are more definitive. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think we can really go back more than a generation or two, um, even though it's tempting to do so. Uh, I think instead, your own choices are much more definitive, not completely, um, but there's so many things. I mean, think about the tide of history, of immigration, of events, our own choices, who we marry, who we don't marry, where we choose to live, the education we get or we don't, our own attitudes. All of that much matters much more, at least in a liberal democracy. Listen, you know, if you're in, in uh, Adolf Hitler's Germany or Joseph Stalin's Russia, yeah, of course, your choices are much more limited. If you're a slave in 1850, of course, your choices are much more limited. But when you're talking about a liberal democracy in 2022, to really blame something on 50 years ago or 150 years ago, or Bill Clinton blaming the Crusades for partly for 9-11, a thousand years ago, <laughs> that's a stretch, a real stretch. So uh, the story of my grandparents is basically to say, listen, you know, uh, there, there are ways to look at life that I think are more helpful as an individual and as a society. Yeah, I'm mean, so, I mean, without a doubt, and it's kind of interesting too that you talk about people coming over from these these places where in which they were real victims, you know, and so many people today. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, Black Americans, yes, they were victims so many generations ago, but people now they are removed as you talk. They fall of the Berlin Wall is recent, but we were removed from that. The people now are so insulated in America, in Canada, um, in many of these, you know, in the UK. They're not being invaded. They're not. They're not under the boot of authoritarianism, and yet they want to usher it back in because they they seem to have lost any sense of comparison or any direct reference of history or even the dangers that are ever present that we've fought to maintain. And I think that's a lot of why they're kind of content to let it flit away. Well, and they're just uh, again. I think they're they don't realize how much you have to work to get away from collectivism and tribalism. 
And, um, you know, and again, when, and I don't know why people expect perfect outcomes. Thomas Sowell summarizes this perfectly. And I quote him in the victim cult on this. I mean, Italians dominated the, you know, the, the fishing industry around the world for what centuries, uh, unlike the Swiss, uh, obvious reason. The Italians have a lot of coastline, you know, and when they emigrated, they already had the fishing gene, so to speak, in them, right? Uh, that's what they did. You wouldn't expect the Swiss to have, you know, to fish in equal proportion as a right. percentage of their population to the, to the Italians in comparison to the Italians. So there's all sorts of reasons why different cohorts differ, and you see that in the statistics. But people don't want to do that hard work. It's easier to latch on a simple explanation. Um, and then when they get frustrated, they revert to, um, I think, pride. And, you know, if, if you're not attached to, say, a grand narrative like life, liberty, and the pursuit of, you know, happiness, the American narrative, it, you know, or, or, you know, the French narrative of liberty, whatever it is, if you're, or, or even a religious identity, which can be cross, you know, racial, um, you know, in Christianity or Judaism or even Islam uh, or other faiths. Or beliefs. If you're not attached to a, a bigger narrative, is the best way to put it, a more positive narrative, then you get stuck reverting to uh, thinking about this, like the skin color, um, mm -hmm. instead of what's in your heart and what's in your head. Um, it's just easier to revert there. But that becomes really dangerous because, of course, none of us can change um, our skin color or ethnicity where we were born. And so I think that's the danger of identity politics today and why so many people are entranced by a victim cult. It does give them an identity, right? And they can fasten onto it and say, and they, and they can point to examples in history that, that seem to have occurred yesterday because of social media. You can pick up a video from 50 years ago and say, your ancestors did this to my ancestors. Yeah. Therefore, it explains me today. No, it doesn't. And it's actually really dangerous to think that. And it's dangerous to think in that collectivist mindset. That's what Germans did. That's what Rwandans did. I write about that in the victim cult. Um, and it's, by the way, I don't think it's very American. Uh, as an observer, I just don't think that's your that's your narrative. Your narrative is uh, the buck stops here. Harry Truman, I'm taking responsibility. Life, liberty, uh, the pursuit of happiness. I mean, you wanted to get away from European uh, cauldron of identity politics and, and found a nation on, on the individual. We're, we're Americans perfect. We're Canadians perfect. We're the Brits perfect. We're imperialists and colonialists around the world perfect. You know, in the English speaking world, no. Um, but that's not the point. The point is attention to the individual and her rights uh, and, and the responsibilities as an individual in law and policy. That's the great success of English civilization more than even Western civilization writ large. So that's what we should pay attention to and renew. And in the, in, in the case of, you know, the United States, I think it's terrible that people are ripping themselves apart a la Europe, you know, a century ago or now. Yeah, I believe you are exactly correct. Uh, Mark Milkey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you, the book? Uh, if you are willing to talk about the new think tank, I'm not sure how far along it, goes, it is yet if you want to promote that, but please tell people where they can find sure. you and, uh, and get the book. So The Victim Cult is available at thevictimcult.com. From there, you can probably link to my website, markmilkey.com. But victimcult.com, uh, the, uh, the new think tank is going to be called the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy. And we're going to look into some of these uh, issues of race and identity and history and the rest of it. Uh, but if you go to victimcult.com, that's a good starting place. And, you can, and there it has links to amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and the rest. But you can find the book across the United States and in your local bookstore. Beautiful. And I will, of course, link to that in the show notes for this very podcast. So again, Mark, thank you so much for coming on and joining me on Electric Liberty Land. Best of luck with the book. I hope it is read far and wide and makes, uh, even if it's a small dent in what is happening, it will be a great service to us all. Thank you, Brian.
All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up, guys, for me, Brian McWilliams and Electric Liberty Land. But at the end of the show, I want to remind you, check out Hashtag Free Ross, the fantastic song from Tyler Colford, a.k.a. Crypto Man, benefiting, of course, Ross Ulbrich. Also, check out Burnin', the Posterian Daylight, our buddy Matt McKinley's awesome podcast, Libertarianism, Horse Wrangling, and all that good stuff. And of course, Guys, check out our other podcasts here. The Lions Liberty. We have other podcasts as well. The Boring Podcast. Me, Rico, Howie, Odie. Hilarious. Pure comedy. Well, not pure comedy. We do get into politics actually quite a bit more now than we used to. Uh, but it is one of the funniest shows you're ever going to hear. It is our legion of skanks where nothing is off limits, including making, well, references to the R word. I'll let your imaginations run wild with that. But check that out anywhere you want to listen to the podcast, The Boring Podcast. And of course, Second Print Comics. Mark and Remza Martinez, they do breakdowns of different comic books, different TV shows for all you nerdlingers out there. So go check that out as well. Support us doing other things, please, guys, as well as sharing this show. I want you to share these other shows to give them a listen, to give them a review, because we're trying to impact the culture here at Lions of Liberty. And just yelling and preaching to the choir is nice, but reaching other people is even nicer. So please support that. Also, guys, Electric Liberty Land, the solo feed. Go subscribe to that. I'm going to be doing a bonus show this weekend just for that feed. So make sure you check that out. Of course, the bonus show will also be for our Patreon crew, patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty and lionsliberty.locals before anybody else gets it on the weekend. So check that out. Thank you for your support. Share the show. Follow us on social media. And uh, I don't know, go kiss your mother on the lips. That's it for me, Brian McWilliams from Electric Liberty Land and from the Lions of Liberty. Always stay plugged in to Liberty. Now I have to get my things. I forgot to queue it up in time. All right, goodbye. (laughs) 